anticipation. His intense, his intense anticipation, his hope that causes him to have this persistent, enduring joy is that Christ will be made much of. That's his hope. He's eagerly anticipating that in his life, Christ will be made much of. Christ will be honored. Christ will be exalted. He will be praised. That was Paul's hope, his intense anticipation. With, with unhindered boldness, he says, without, without caring about what the world sees, without caring about what the world says, no matter the circumstances, no matter the audience, without wavering in the face of hostility, he's confident that he will make much of Christ. That's his hope. His hope is that without any regard for time, he says, even now as always, past, present, future, he says, I will make much of Christ with every fiber of his being, while he's in his body, the whole of his being will make much of Christ. Whether he lives or dies, he will make much of Christ. He is consumed with Christ. But what is it about Paul that, that leads to Christ being made much of in his life or his death? What was his fundamental perspective that was driving this hope and expectation? Verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is Paul's life equation. This is Paul's constant perspective. Life equals Christ. Death equals gain. This is a man consumed with Christ. What does he mean by for, for to me to live is Christ? We, we, we take that and we run in all kinds of crazy directions. We, we don't have to wonder what that means or what that looks like because he explains himself in the next verse. He says in verse 22, but if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. That's what it means to live as Christ. To live as Christ means fruitful labor. To live as Christ is to labor for the bearing of spiritual fruit in the lives of other people. To live as Christ is to expend maximum effort for personal spiritual growth and the spiritual growth of other people that they bear fruit that's pleasing to God with their lives. To live as Christ is to, to strive for the glorification of Christ in every thought, action, word, motive, and deed in both your life and the lives of everyone else that's sitting in this room, in our church. That's being consumed with Christ. That's what it means to live is Christ. And, and death equals gain? Death is gain? Yes, he says, because to die is to depart and be with Christ. And as Paul says here, that, that is very much better. That is very much better. It's because Psalm 1611 is true. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. To be with Christ is to perfectly be in his presence.
presence. It's to be perfectly obedient, to perfectly worship him, to perfectly see him, to perfectly adore him, to perfectly enjoy him without any hint or taint of sin. That is truly gain for those consumed with Christ. To be consumed with Christ, to have Paul's perspective that to live is Christ and to die is gain, that creates a persistent, unshakable, unbreakable joy in gospel partnership. The joy of our fellowship, the joy of our working together in the gospel, in fact, it hinges upon this very truth and this very point. Will we be consumed with Christ in making much of him? Or will we be consumed with ourselves or anything other than him? If we aren't consumed with Christ and all about Christ in this kind of way, what's going to happen is that we are going to consume one another. We will consume one another. If what I want is primary and ultimate and what I want is my own glory or my own opinions and preferences and everything being just my way, I'm going to be disappointed. I'm going to be disappointed. Everything we can put our hope in, everything we can find our joy in apart from Christ can and will be destroyed. But the glory of Christ The glory, the exaltation of Christ is the indestructible rock upon which we can have persistent joy. His glory is the the sure foundation for a confident hope that leads to an indestructible joy in the work of the gospel. Seek, church, seek your joy in the exaltation of Christ. Put to death selfish ambition. Seek the exaltation of Christ. Pursue making much of Christ with all that you are and pursue that in the lives of each other. That each other, that you will make much of Christ, that you will, that one another we will. That's the second key to persistent joy. Be consumed with Christ. Number three, be convinced to minister. Be convinced to minister. Look at verses 24 to 26 with me. He says, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Although he longed to to be with Christ and that that was very much better, Paul says he, he knows right now His mission was to engage in fruitful labor in the lives of those that God had given him to shepherd. He was convinced, convinced of this, he says, that his task was to faithfully continue to minister, to faithfully seek the spiritual good of the Philippians and the other churches that he served, to serve them spiritually. And you say, yeah, that's Paul. That's Paul's job. That's, That's our elders' job. That's not my job. I'm not a pastor. Ministry is not for me. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. No, it is your job. Ministry is all of our responsibility. Ministry is not for professionals. 
Ephesians 4 says the job of pastors and teachers is not to do the work of ministry themselves, although they do that. It's to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. That's why we have equipping classes. That's why we call them equipping classes, so that the church is equipped to do ministry, so that the body is built up by each other and we become more like Christ. The saints, normal Christians, do ministry. Your job is the same as Paul describes here. We're to seek one another's progress and joy in the faith. Progress and joy in the faith. This is what our lives need to be about in relationship to each other. Seeking one another's progress and joy in the faith. Our goal in relationships isn't having friends on a merely social, cultural, common interest level. Those kinds of relationships will destroy your joy because they're always going to let you down. They're shallow, they're they're, they're temporary. But if your joy is found in the progress and joy in the faith of other believers in the body, if you're convinced that the reason you're here is to do ministry, to serve others for their spiritual good. You're going to have a persistent reason to rejoice. So when opportunities to serve come up, they are a reason for rejoicing. So when it's your turn to serve in the nursery, when it's the week to go to growth group and engage and serve one another in that context, when it's that dreaded week where you actually have to host the growth group with all the children in your house with your stuff, it's an opportunity to rejoice. It's an opportunity to rejoice, to engage in awkward conversations with people you don't know super well on a Sunday morning seeking their progress and joy in the faith. When you have the opportunity to, to prepare a meal for somebody for whatever reason, circumstance in their life, it's a reason to rejoice, to pray with someone, to come alongside someone in sin or suffering with the truth of the word. Those aren't opportunities that should cause us to be fearful or should cause us dread or should, oh, that's a burden. No, those are opportunities for joy because you're doing what you're called to do You're doing what you're supposed to do. We have to be convinced. We we have to have this as a, a fundamental conviction in the core of our being that why we are here is to serve the spiritual needs of others in the body. We need to stop having a consumeristic mindset that I'm here to be served. Our Lord had something to say about that, didn't he? That even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we're supposed to follow in his footsteps and serve one another. Brothers and sisters, make your life ever more increasingly about ministering to others. Pursue serving others. Pursue the growth of other believers and you will have a persistent joy. We must be convinced to minister to the glory of Christ in our relationships in the body. But we're people, aren't we? We're we're people. And as people, we sometimes sin against one another, don't we? No, not, not, not everybody in this room. 
Now those relationships, as we know too well, sometimes undergrow strain, which leads us to our fourth key to pursuing persistent joy. Number four, be concerned with unity. Be concerned with unity. Look at verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. After encouraging his readers, as he does so often in the book of Philippians with his example, Paul turns to exhort the Philippians. What are they supposed to do? Paul's been talking about himself and now he turns to them to give them instruction. How, how are they supposed to persist and persevere in the same kind of joy that he says he has and will have? Well, he tells them here to, to live in such a way, to conduct their lives in such a way as pledged to the gospel of Christ. As we heard this morning from the book of Romans, the gospel is not simply to be believed as an entry point into Christianity, but it is a standard by which Christians live. We, we conduct, we behave ourselves, we, we live in light of the nature of the gospel. And the nature of the gospel is that it takes us out of darkness into light, from sin to righteousness, from rebellion to submission, from orphans to children of God from depraved sinners to chosen saints. The transformative nature of the gospel, that doesn't end at conversion, it begins at conversion. And we are to live and strive in such a way that reflects that transformation in our day-to-day -day lives in ever-increasing ways. Now, in other places in, in the Bible, Paul goes different directions with this very same imperative. But here he says the primary way you do that is by pursuing unity. The result of the gospel is unity. The transformation that the gospel brings about it is to bring about unity. What Paul wants for the Philippians is that they're, they're standing firm in one spirit. They're, they're firmly grounded in the truth. They have the same drive, the same mission. They're about the same thing. They have the same passion. They're all thinking in the same ways. To have a deep and pervasive unity that's rooted in the gospel. A steadfast, enduring, persevering kind of unity. And he specifies here how they're supposed to get that unity. That unity comes by striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Like-minded striving for the gospel together is the means of standing firm together. Sometimes when division comes into the body, our, our natural instinct is to run, to run away. Something happens, I didn't like this and I'm, and I'm on. Paul's saying here, no, no. If you want to be unified, you need to persevere together through that. And that persevering effort in the gospel is actually going to link you together. Persevering together in the joy of the gospel depends on working together in the work of the gospel. He's saying, be a team. Work together. Labor together for the gospel together. And you're going to come along and be united together as you labor together. How does, 
How does being steadfast in unity lead to persistent joy? How, how does this lead to persistent joy? Well, if we're committed to this kind of, of gospel unity, we're going to be able to endure hardship together. We lock arms with our brothers and sisters in Christ and we go to work. We pick each other up when we're down. We point each other to the truths of the gospel. We seek to labor for one another's progress and joy in the faith and we're persistent about it. We, we persevere in doing each other spiritual good. That brings joy. A unified church constantly giving and receiving, helping and being helped, all as we strive to the glory of Christ that brings us together and creates this kind of joy in our fellowship that is persistent, that's able to persevere. The importance of being a committed member in the local church can't be stressed enough in light of this passage and a bajillion other passages in the New Testament. Literally a bajillion. It's a real number. You didn't know that. You learned something this morning. No. No, we need the church. We need to be unified as the local church if we want persistent joy. And to be unified in the church, you have to be a member of the church. So if you're sitting in this room and you've been coming to Summit Woods for some time and you haven't joined... Let me, let, me, let me help you. There's no good reason why not. There's no good reason for why you shouldn't join and become a member of the church. There's no good, you can give me whatever reason you want. There's no good reason. There's no good reason we need the church. Our joy is on shaky ground apart from it. It's kind of unified, striving together. It's fulfilling our purpose in Christ and that is a joyful thing. But division, disunity within the church, that's not the only threat. There's also opposition from the outside to this uni united striving. There is certain suffering and persecution for the person living a life worthy of the gospel. And that leads us to our fifth key for persevering in the joy of gospel partnership. And that is be calm in suffering. Be calm in suffering. Look at verses 28 to 30. So he says you're, you're striving side by side together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents. Which is a sign of destruction for them but of salvation for you. And that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. We should not be alarmed at opposition from the outside. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, it shouldn't surprise us. It should not surprise us. We should be calm fearlessly facing opponents to the gospel. And when we do that, when we face opposition with boldness, without fear, not being alarmed, that says something. It says something to them, the opponents of the gospel, and it says something to us. It says to them, you're doomed. That's what he says. This is a sign of destruction for them. You picked the wrong side. <laughs> You're face to face with this 
undaunted force that is the church and you see that unity and you see their joy despite your persecution and opposition, uh-oh, uh-oh. But to do that also points to our salvation. When we stand in the face of opposition together, unified, it points to the fact that we are actually saved. And Paul says that salvation is from God. Only those supernaturally saved by the grace of God and belonging to him as his adopted children suffer together for the gospel. We'll explain that, elaborate on that a little bit further. Well, thankfully, Paul does elaborate. He does explain in verse 29. He says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. The, the gift of the grace of God, of, of salvation by grace through faith in Christ comes in a package deal with suffering for Christ. Did you catch that? If you believe the gospel, if you've received the gift of God's grace in salvation, what you have also simultaneously received is the gift of suffering for Christ. Christ gets glory through his work of saving us, but Christ also gets glory by us suffering for him. Did you catch the emphasis? It's for his sake. It's for his sake. It's for his glory. Facing opposition to Christ and suffering because of Christ is guaranteed to believers in this text. And it's called a grace. A grace. That's what the word granted means. It's a grace gift of God to us. What this verse is telling us is that God has graciously provided us with the faith to believe in Christ. But God has also graciously given us the privilege of suffering for Christ. That, that, that should change our perspective of, of suffering and persecution. That, that should shape our perspective, not, not as something to be avoided at all costs, and it's not something to be pursued either. It's a gift that God gives sovereignly, graciously. He brings it about in our lives for our good and for the glory of Christ, for the sake of Christ. It shows his worthiness, how worthy he is, not just to be believed in for salvation, but to suffer for him. This exalts Christ. And we can be Calm and fearless in suffering for Christ because we believe that he truly is worthy and it motivates us that this is for his sake, for his glory. Being calm in, in suffering is key to persisting in the joy of the labor of gospel work because persecution is going to come. It is. We, we, we can look at, you do this, you look at the news, you, you watch the news, the headlines, however you, you get and you see what's going on in our world around us and you think, man, really seems like persecution might be coming. Stop it. <laughs> there is no might. There is no might. It is promised to us as a gift of the grace of God in this verse. 
Even more broadly, Paul, he promises this in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise, not a possibility. That's a promise. We don't think about promises like that. We think, you know, our, our prosperity gospel propensity kicks in at that point. And, and we think about promises as only positive, you know, delightful kinds of things. And this is a promise. We will suffer. We will be persecuted. So we must, we must embrace it. We, we need to have that as a, as a core conviction of who we are, that we're ready. We should be ready. We should be prepared for suffering, prepared for persecution so that when it comes, we're not surprised. We're calm. We're, we're fearless. We've prepared for this. We've been waiting for this. That enables us to have persistent joy even in the midst of those trials, even in the midst of that suffering and persecution. If we're confident in prayer, consumed with Christ, convinced to minister, concerned with unity and calm in suffering, what, what can conquer our joy? If, as we sang this morning, if God is for us, who can be against us? What's going to conquer our joy? Nothing. Nothing. But if your joy in, in the fellowship of the church is in lesser things, things you have in common with people around you, you just like being here, the music suits you, your joy is hanging from a thread. And the smallest tremble is going to break it. Now we need this perspective in the days, weeks, and years to come if we want true, lasting, persistent joy in our gospel partnership. Brothers and sisters, this is nothing new for us. I've said nothing that should surprise you, I don't think. Nothing that should be new for you. This is what we have been about. This is what we are about. That's why we're here today. And we can continue in it by God's grace and for his glory. May we persevere in the joy of our gospel partnership, not just in this day, but in the days and weeks and months and years and decades and centuries to come. Let's pray.